but I reckon we just we just say a quick prayer and we get into it. What do you reckon? Sounds good. Awesome. Um, Heavenly Father, we we just thank you for another night that we get to be together, Lord, and uh, we thank you for Wade being with us, Lord, and we thank you so much for what you have done and what you are still doing in his life and in all of ours, Lord. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And we just pray that um, you'd encourage our hearts tonight as we um, just look at um, the work that you've done in Wade's life, Lord. We, we just thank you for this opportunity. Once again, we pray that you'd be with us and that you bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, bro. Um, amen. Well, really, Wade, I reckon... It's good to just start at the start. Like I, I met you, um, I met you two years in a row because you were at Gathering both years, weren't you? That's correct. Yeah, I, I went to a, for those of you guys who don't know, I went to this conference that um, uh, happens in Queensland uh, called The Gathering, which is all these amazing Christians from all kind of different walks of life come together and, and they have a conference. And one of the speakers last year, I think by accident, like it wasn't even a planned thing, uh, was Wade and and I heard him share probably some of what you're going to hear tonight and I was blown away. Um, but I reckon it's just it's just good to start at at the start, Wade. So um, where'd you grow up, bro? Where do you come from? Sure, thanks, Shady. Um, so welcome everyone. It's a pleasure to be given the opportunity, obviously, to um, chat with you guys. I'm a little nervous, so I thought I'd just put that out there. Um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate um, the, the opportunity to be able to share part of my story. So the beginning for me, I grew up in uh, a little town called Warwick Farm, which is in the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, basically, I yeah, I I was born in Warwick Farm. Um, my my parents, a lot of my family still live in Warwick Farm, so they've never left that area of Sydney. It's uh, it's quite a if you could call it a lower socio-economic um, town, and essentially my my mum and dad uh, they left Warwick Farm when I was about two or three years old, and we moved to a place called Kingcumber down in the Central Coast, which is about an hour and a half from Sydney. Um, so, what would you like to know, like in terms of what? childhood was like or what life was like growing yeah, up I, I guess I, I remember you saying you started to experiment when you were six so yeah, I'm done, yeah I'd done a little bio I um so I grew up in a family of um uh, drug addicts and heroin addicts um and basically my experimentations stage started yeah when I was six years old we used to my mum and dad would go out partying and they'd get babysitters to come and uh, look after me and my sister my my sister was three at the time and um, you know they'd be drinking and, and and smoking pot and so my my drug use really started um, really really young I I was I guess that initiation stage of um, you know of hanging around teenagers, they were 13, 14, 15, the babysitters, and they, they were just starting to um, experiment themselves. So I guess it was just a thing, yeah, we'd, we'd sit in a circle and they'd go around and play truth and dare, and I was in the middle of two of the babysitters and, you know, the alcohol and the cigarettes would get passed around and the, the, the bong would get passed around. And um, so I'd get stoned from, you know, the, the basically the, the passive smoke, um, yeah. and also sip on the beer occasionally when it came around. So that was my first um, first drug use experience. You were six? I was six years old, yeah. Wow, man. That's insane. And how do you feel like it, it kind of, it affected you from that point? What happened kind of after that? Um, I know question two was like, when did I start to sort of go off the rails? And... I guess um, for me, life at home, drug addiction, there's, there's eight generations of uh, drug addiction in my family as far as I can track back. So I've, I've tracked that back through generations just now out of wanting to understand um, how I break this cycle 
of addiction for my family. Uh, you would have just seen, you know, my kids and you didn't see my wife, but essentially my, I feel like my mission that God's given me is to break this intergenerational trauma um, that has perpetuated and basically just been a cycle for eight generations throughout my family. Um, so growing up around that stuff was just normal for me. It was never really, you know what I mean? It wasn't, it, I don't really feel like I knew any different. So it was just a, um, basically a, a normal experience, you know, I, I, I didn't know any different. So it was, um, yeah, it was a, it was a challenge. I know like growing up through school and stuff, um, I felt out of place a lot. I felt different to my peers and, um, you know, now I've had, I guess, the opportunity to explore um, trauma. And, you know, when I get down the timeline a little bit, my, you know, I'll share a little bit about my wife and what she does and what she was studying at the time that she met me. Um, but essentially, yeah, so growing up from, you know, birth to, to five years old, I've probably got a lot of good memories from three to five. And I think, um, you know, the, probably the most influential time of my life in terms of brain development and, you know, the environment that I grew up in essentially uh, wasn't a, a good environment. You know, I, I watched my, um, there was a lot of domestic violence. There was a lot of drug use, a lot of, um, you know, like I've got early childhood memories of being locked in a toilet and fed uh, Devon in tomato sauce by my heroin addicted dad's mate. And that was sort of like what my life um was like you know and I didn't know any know any different and you know that can be confronting for some people but you know and I love my mum and dad dearly you know they they essentially they were traumatized people just doing the best that they could with what they had and you know it wasn't until I was able to look back over you know the period of my whole family that I'd seen that basically the same environment has just been being created for hundreds of years, you know? Um, so yeah, no blame fully, um, forgiven and, 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 you know, past all that stuff. But I think, um, you know, primary school age, I, like I said, I, I felt out of place. I, you know, I started wagging school at a young age. I was removed from main school, um, basically the mainstream schooling in year two, and I was sent to a, a behavioural special school. Um, and I spent about four or five years in that school. Um, I think that really probably made the situation worse in a sense because I, you know, I was now labelled with, um, I felt like I was this kid that was just, you know stupid basically um so that i really struggled with that and then i went back to main main school um yeah i went back to, to mainstream schooling um and i struggled because of the content that we were learning in school wasn't up to you know i, I didn't fit within the school system basically and um my reports were bad everything was basically bad so it wasn't i think i was would have been about 13 that I fully, yeah, probably 12, 13 that I really started to um, experiment and my drug use became problematic at, at that age. So a lot of truancy from school, class clown, a lot of wagging. Um, and I started just smoking cannabis, you know, occasionally with friends and it was, it was great fun. And before that point from like that six to 13, were you still using or were you like, it kind of dropped off and then you're like, no, nah, I'm going to kind of start again now since all this other stuff has gone wrong as well. Um, there was, there was periods of time again where it was just constant party. So there was, yeah, there was bouts of drinking here and there. I mean, it wasn't a, a full blown addiction, obviously at that stage, it was more just, um, if I was around certain people, we'd have, you know, my my family would give me beers and stuff like that. So, yeah, it wasn't a full blown. It wasn't until I was like 13, 15, 16 that it became a full blown addiction um, for me. When you started to experiment, like how, what does that mean? What did that look like? How did it impact you? Um, so, yeah, again, it was just a... 
I guess the peer, you know, the, the, the peer pressure growing up in high school. And I went from playing, you know, sports to hanging around a different group at school. And essentially we just started wagging. We, we you know, we, we, we started smoking occasionally. It might've been when we went out on the weekend, it was just a, you know, have a couple of joints and get drunk and, and it was good. But as I continued down that path, I started to lose a lot of my uh, football friend mates and essentially just going towards this crowd that was constantly in trouble with the law constant. And then I was, yeah, year 10, I sort of, I, again, I really didn't like school. So I, I was basically just given the ultimatum. If I didn't um, attend anymore, I'd, I'd I, w I wouldn't have got my school certificate. So I was lucky to get my school certificate. I, I completed that in five minutes. Um, and I actually got in trouble for that because I, again, it was just the, I was a class clown. We were all sitting in the big hall. Um, I'd sat down to do the exam and I, I think it was about five or 10 minutes and I'd put my hand up and said, you know, I've, I've completed my, um, my essay. Um, and the teachers pulled me out and they were like, mate, there's no way you could have completed all of that in five or 10 minutes. I said, I'm, I'm done. Like, so basically I had to resit the exam. And so this time I took about 15 or 20 minutes and I just didn't put my hand up for about an hour, hour and a half. And I just sat there. Um, but it was funny because we found the reports not long ago and I've just been trying to collate all this information of my life and, you know, my wife, because um, she's starting to homeschool now with the kids because she can, I guess, she um, she really seen how school affected myself and, you know, it was, yeah, I like I said, I'd, I'd sort of finished my year 10 certificate in 15 minutes. I, I literally... I got like 50%, which was, that's what you had to get to actually get your certificate. So I think the school just gave me, I wasn't even aiming to, you know, as long as I got the 50% and I could finish school and leave school, I, I was uh, happy with that. And that's what happened. As soon as I got the certificate, I left school and then the downward spiral began. Basically, I, um, I started using and experimenting with a whole heap of other drugs and hanging around certain people. But uh, probably weren't the best uh, role models, you know, but looking back now, I, ju I guess it's not that they're bad people, but they just had similar uh, life experiences as myself and, and role models and influences in their life that, um, you know, that, that weren't the best. So lost in that same spiral kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so year 10, you would have been like 15. 14 and nine months, you could leave school. <clears throat> yeah. And so what happened kind of between that and sort of 20? Uh, yeah. So I went, I, I left school. I um, left school, but I kept going back to school. So I'd go and get stoned at, you know, breakfast and recess and lunch with all the guys that had, that had come out. So I was, I was still sort of going to catch up with everyone that was still going to school. But I, um, I you know, I, I wasn't at school essentially. So again it just yeah a lot of crime started a lot of um break and enters and stuff to support my my drug addiction um you know and basically i started experimenting um with harder drugs at you know 16 17 um and then yeah obviously the criminal record stuff started so i was getting in trouble with the law and uh that's probably been a that's probably been a massive challenge for me um how so just in terms of having a criminal record and not being able to uh get certain so every decision that i make still today and god's blessed me with an awesome job now uh which is great but it's taken a long time for me to get a job and i'm 30 i'll be 34 this year 35 in like three months you know um so the decisions that i was making when i was 13 that people were saying look if you if you don't start to make the right choices, then it's going to create a lot of drama for your long term. And I mean, obviously, developmentally, I wasn't at the stage to comprehend consequence. And you know what I mean? I didn't have that ability to to um, foresee the future. And I, I didn't worry about it. And 
plus I had no, I, I, I didn't care at that point in my life. Um, but yeah, it's been a massive, a massive challenge, you know, I, um, yeah, I've completed more in the last five years of, it'll be seven years this year that I'll be clean and sober. Um, and I've completed more in that six years of my life than I had the rest of my life, basically. It's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy thing to hear, man. And especially like, I get what you're saying. Even if somebody is saying something to you when you're that young and they're right, you really struggle to kind of comprehend it. Like you're saying, um, I think, I think we rebel as young people. And for me, it was always don't do this and don't do that. And as soon as I got told don't do something, I was like, that's like the, the, the big green button to do it, you know? Um, yeah. And, and sometimes you need to go through those uh, learning experiences, I suppose, to get to a point where you, you know, like obviously now I look back and I'm like, wow, I should have, you know, it would have been great if I had have um, listened. But I think from the moment I was sort of born, it was always going to be the trajectory of my life anyway, can, because my whole family had been living that lifestyle and still do live that lifestyle today, the ones that haven't passed away. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really been a challenge. For sure. uh, in I, that sense, but. I remember you saying something to me that like stopped me dead in my tracks when we were, I don't even know if you remember this or not, but um, after you spoke last year at that conference, we we're all in the lobby, like waiting to get lunch or something like that. And I came up to you and I said, hi, I met you briefly the year before, but I was just saying hi. And, was just talking to you and while we were talking you said something you said that um when you and your wife went to the beach she was admiring the sunset um one day and um she was like wow isn't that a beautiful sunset type thing and you couldn't feel it like because when you've taken the drug it like what you were used to like as, as to hit your pleasure centers and all that kind of stuff was mm. so like out of whack that seeing something that was kind of simple and normal and beautiful in its own way, it didn't register with you because you were used to a higher height. Do you know, yeah. like, do you, do you remember like? I do. Yeah. Cause we still go and look at sunsets and they're still not the, um, I mean, they're, they're beautiful now because I just see it as God's creation, but I definitely don't get the uh, dopamine release that a, you know, a, a shot of ice methamphetamine would, would give me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and, and, just to give you a bit of an idea, looking at a sunset, you get about 50 units of dopamine. So we all know what dopamine is, yeah? Just give maybe, us a... Maybe it'd be worth explaining. <laughs> just give us a nod if you know. Yeah, so it's basically the chemical that gives you joy and makes you feel good. And a sunset, when you look at a sunset or when you eat food, you know, you get a, you get a release of dopamine in the brain, which goes, that was awesome. That's why we look for it when we're... You know, I don't know if you've got a food addiction or whatever the addiction might be, but the what dopamine is essentially what makes you happy, yeah? So um, a part of my story is I, I became a, a, an ice addict. I was addicted to methamphetamine for a lot of years and dopamine, uh, methamphetamine releases um, anywhere between 12 to 1400% dopamine in the brain. So that's like 3,000 times as strong as a sunset, you know. And what happens is addiction, the definition of addiction is basically it's a, it's a, it's a chronic relapsing disorder characterised by compuls compulsive drug seeking, continued use despite harmful consequences and long-lasting changes in the brain. So with the amount of meth that I was using, essentially my, my brain could no longer produce um, dopamine, essentially. And it started from smoking pot. You might get 150, um, you know, units of dopamine when you smoke and you feel good. And, you know, it's, um, and then cocaine might be 300%, but meth's like 1200% increase. And eventually what happens is you go into a, a, an acute, phase of withdrawal and depression uh, and the brain can no longer produce dopamine so it takes a lot of years to essentially you know for the brain to be able to uh, heal itself in a sense and 
you like that's that's obviously a massive way that this affected you like just the continued kind of use but what what else were kind of some of the effects or some of the downsides that you went through while you were using um look i think for me like cannabis and smoking pot was probably the big biggest part of my journey from the age of 13 basically through to 27 but what had happened is I'd started just using all forms of drugs essentially um, but cannabis was probably one of the biggest ones that had the most impact on me and, you know in 2009 I I'd sort of gotten to a period where I was coming off it and um, I'd gone into a, a drug induced psychosis and I'd ended up in a psychiatric uh, care unit um, I was diagnosed with um, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder um, and these are all things that obviously the, the, the marijuana had contributed to um, so sorry what was the question again that just yeah just how how did it affect you like other yeah. than the crazy dopamine hits like the yeah so I think um, obviously loss of well, employment I was going to say loss of employment I couldn't get employment so <laughs> loss of employment uh relationships probably the biggest one was my, my the dreams and hopes that i that i had you know for a better future um the mental illness component um the rehabilitation centers that happened the jail that happened there was just an accumulation of all this stuff it was like this yeah downward spiral basically yeah a crazy downward spiral. Where does the jail part fit into the story? Um, so I think we went from 13 to 20, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. So at 20, I, um, 20 years of age, I was, sorry, at 19, I'd gone to rehab and I'd gotten off pot, um, I'd come back to my hometown, King Cumber, and it, I'd probably lasted about maybe three months before I was hanging around the same, you know, people, places and things. And I didn't last long and I started using again. Um, and I noticed that one of my mates had, had gone missing and I hadn't seen him for probably six to eight months. And I, I didn't know where he'd gone. I didn't know what had happened to him. Um, and he was doing some pretty bad stuff prior to leaving so i i just look i i thought the worst and and actually thought that um you know he'd been that he died essentially and then about six seven months later he came back onto the scene and he looked really good he was smiling he was happy uh and i i said to him you know i said paul like where have you been what have you been doing and he said i've i've been living with a christian uh family in Terrigal, which is a, a town just out near Kincumber. And, um, you know, they've introduced me to God. I've started going to church. Um, <clears throat> and I think that point in time, I sort of, you know, I really had this unhealthy relationship with God, this fear of God. And, you know, I thought God was this guy in the sky that essentially threw bolts of lightning at people like me, metaphorically speaking. And, I didn't think I could ever have a relationship with God. But anyway, cut a long story short, he, he invited me along to a Bible study. I'd gone to this house and they'd started talking in tongues and I was like spinning out, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and he's like, just keep coming along, just, you know, keep coming along. Anyway, cut a long story short, I, I kept going along. And uh, a year after I was baptised as a Christian, and it happened to be the same date that he got baptised a year before which we hadn't planned so it was sort of a, a, a cool and little things like that started to happen and I was like you know I don't think that's coincident that stuff and at the time I was just going to church to be around new people you know because it got taught to me when I was in rehab that you have to change you know people places and things um, so church was really an opportunity to be around different people and 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 whatnot and um, so I got baptised as a Christian um, and I was breaking this down with my wife's mum the other night and 
you know, I got a big cross tattooed on my back and I, like, I, I just started, like got covered in religious Jesus tattoos. And, you know, if you can see, see that. Yep. So that's like a photo of Jesus. And I thought I'd chuck his mum in there too. Um, that, just for respect. Was that all at that same time? At like that 2021 kind of... Oh, the tattoos have sort of been on and off. Yeah, uh, through the journey. The biggest, the biggest one I got was a cross that covers my whole back, basically. And um, I wasn't sure how to pitch this, but then everything bad started happening in my life. I mean, well, there was already bad stuff happening, but there was a period where I'd like, you know what I mean? My my mum and that were really, really happy for me and everything seemed to be working out and I started to do okay. But then um, essentially I just, yeah, really, really bad stuff started to happen again. And um, Libby's mum was explaining, I don't know, like I'm still trying to learn a lot about the Bible and she just she just basically said that it was a lot like Job's story in the Bible where, you know, the devil said, I think the devil said to God, you know, the only reason he's following you and he likes you is because there's good stuff happening in his life. And I'm going to take that away. Um, and that's what happened. You know, everything got taken away. I, I started to lose my best friends from drug overdoses. Um, you know, I, I ended up in, in rehab. Can I share a slide with you guys? Yeah, bro, please go ahead. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. All right, I hope this works. Awesome. So I was a I was probably about yeah, I don't even know, about twenty there. Um so yeah, basically I I um was going to church, good things were happening, and then all this bad stuff started to happen again and I um, essentially, well, I relapsed and I started hanging out with the, the old crowd again. And, you know, I, I was drinking a lot more. I was using a lot more drugs. Um, but 23, which will be the next photo, um, there was a period of time where I'd given up drinking again. And I thought it'd be good to go out and have a drink one night and I woke up the next morning facing a seven year jail sentence and I had no recognition, no, I didn't remember anything that had happened. Uh, so this is one of the photos. This is actually a photo that was taken when I got arrested. Uh, but prior to that, I was in a, so at 23, I was admitted into the, the psychiatric unit and I, yeah, I was, I weighed 57 kilos. I basically had no, you know, I was pretty sick. And um, this was a combination of like heavy psychotic medications. Uh, so I went from like 57 kilos to 140 kilos within like a three to four, maybe five month period. Wow. Uh, but anyway, I woke up facing a seven year jail sentence. And <clears throat> these are some of the prisons that I went to. Um, so this is, this is a maximum security prison in uh, Sydney. It's called MRRC. It's the largest maximum security prison in Australia. And basically every inmate goes in New South Wales goes into this center uh, before they get Segregated. So when you're in MRRC, it's a metropolitan remand centre. So essentially, you're in there. You 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 go into the prison and you're not you're not classified. So basically, what happens is you you get put in there with like people that have murdered people. There's a whole you know, and you're in the cells with them. Like I had I had a guy that was on remand for eight years who had who'd done a double murder, and he. Um, he would come up and ask me for cigarettes. He'd just, he'd, he'd ask that I'd like, and at that time you could smoke in the prison. You can't anymore. Um, and he'd ask me for my cigarette, like the bumpers of my cigarettes. And I'd be like, just have some smokes, bro. You know what I mean? Like, 
That's uh, insane, bro. So before you guys are split off, you're just in with everybody kind of thing and you don't know. No, you don't. Yeah, you you don't know, right? But no. sorry, I, I sort of went off track. No, no, no. Nah. This is, yeah. Where's this? This is Parramatta Jail. They've closed that down now. So back in 2009, that's when I was there. Uh, these are the cells. Um, so it's been it's been a really good opportunity for me to to actually be grateful to be in lockdown when I am in lockdown because that's was a place where you know what I mean like people were complaining about being in lockdown and um you know you're sleeping next to your toilet you're you know and you've got other you've got another roommate in there as well and they're generally they're detoxing or using so every cellmate that I had from the moment I went in the jail so just to backtrack a little bit 23 I got arrested I was looking at a seven-year jail sentence. Um, oh, I got I got para I, I got bail and I went to rehab again. So this is my second admission into rehab. Um, I spent a year in rehab and then they removed me from rehab to put me in jail. So I was the first person taken out of that facility and actually taken into jail. Usually the the you know, go to the rehab things to get out of jail free card, but that didn't work this time. So I'd done a year in rehab. So I was thankful in the sense that I'd, um, I'd gotten to get clean. And then when I went into prison, basically every um, cellmate that I had used drugs in jail. So there's more, there's more drugs in prison than there is on the street. And they're a lot more expensive as well. And, on the left, that's when I left prison. The right is my cousin. And so on my mum's side of the family, um, both of his brothers have passed away from heroin overdoses. Um, so you can start to see like this intergenerational, um, you know, on my mum's side, there's just so much. The devil's just been destroying my family for years and years and years and years and years and years and years, and years you know. Mm. Um, so... Yeah, just so much hurt and pain, I suppose, in the family. And, you know, I, um, yeah, it's just a, a big battle to change, you know. Here, this is where the good stuff comes in. So this is where God, you know, so I got out of jail in 2009 again. I went home. I, sorry, in 2011 or whatever it was. So I'd done the year in rehab. I'd committed, uh, I pleaded into a, a, basically a lesser charge that was offered. I was found, um, I was found not guilty of the charge that I was in initially charged with. So they gave me four years uh, imprisonment with the rehab. And then also um, I had 18 months parole and I served a couple of years in jail. Um, but anyway, I got out of prison in two thousand and in two thousand and eleven. I was uh, I went back home with mum and dad, and I started using drugs again. Um, I lasted about three months, and I got arrested again in Sydney, um, under the Harbour Bridge in a blow-up boat on New Year's Eve. I I sailed a yacht to Sydney Harbour uh, with a friend of mine. We had no idea how to sail boats. Uh, but we took this yacht and we sailed to Sydney Harbour. Um, and essentially, yeah, I woke up on New Year's Day floating under the Harbour Bridge in this little blow-up boat, not knowing what had happened again. I'd been arrested. And I ended up back in rehab for the third time. Um, which wow, was, bro. Yeah. So over, like, quite a long duration of my life. It's just been, you know, particularly my twenties has probably been till basically 27. Uh, anyway, cut a long story short. I, this is where the good, good God stuff starts to happen. And, you know, you, you, you asked me a question about where's God's hand in all of this and God's hand in all of this is basically from the moment I was born, you know, Man. same. Man. It's the same for every one of you guys. He's, he's there no matter what you do or what happens in your life from the moment that you conceive, God's there. He created you. You know what I mean? So even through all that stuff, 
he was constantly there, but it was just a, a part of a journey that I had to go on, you know, to, to um, essentially build that relationship with him. Same story as Joe, essentially. And the other thing that my wife's mum, actually, I'll... Well, where did, well, while you're while you're there, where does Libby come into the story? Where does where when did you meet your your wife and what impact did she have on you? All right, so the first song that I learned how to play when I became a Christian um, was. Have you guys heard of Sean McDonald? Wow! No. <laughs> we'll look him up after this. Sean McDonald, take my hand. He's a Christian artist. And not many people have heard of him, right? So here's where my wife comes in. I'm at, I get out of rehab for the third time. I leave rehab with a bag um, and I get dropped in the main street to fend for myself, basically. I'm not going back to King Cumber because I, don't, I, I need to create a new life. Anyway, I, um, I've got a guitar and, you know, I, I've got no money. I'm homeless. So I go busking for the first time. And when I started playing guitar and singing, that was a really, it was a powerful time for me to connect with God and, and worship God. And anyway, cut a long story short, I was walking through this little laneway and I'd never been busking in my life. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go busking. Um, and basically try and earn some money to get some food. So I picked this little laneway that I thought there'd be no one in. And there's my wife, not at the time, but, you know, Libby's standing in the laneway and she's playing guitar. And I walk past and I say to her, you're in my spot. And I keep walking. And, and I, I get to the end of the laneway and I turn around and I see her starting to pack up her guitar. And I, and I felt bad, you know, I'd never been busking. So I, I went back. Anyway, cut a long story short, she'd packed up her stuff. The money that she'd made when I'd opened up my case, she put into my case. And she said, would, uh -huh. you, she said, would you mind if I just sat with you and, um, and watched? You know, because I know how scary it can be um, when you're starting to busk. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And anyway, I started to play the four chords of this song. And I looked up and she had tears running down her eyes. And she said, how do you know that song? She said, that's my favourite song. And it's, it was the first song that I'd ever learned how to use on, play on guitar. And she said, no one knows that song. Not even Christians know who Sean McDonald is. Right? So again, I was like, this is God. Anyway, cut a long story short. I've probably said that 15 times. That's um, fine, bro. You can keep saying it. I can condense it all. But we left right so she i played a couple more songs um she walked off i went my other way i went to church you know maybe two or three weeks later and my mate was there and um i walk into church and i look over and libby's sitting in church sitting in the church that i that i went to it was a recovery church and we started talking again and um we started to slowly build a relationship and I was always like scared of committing to stuff because I just come from this life where, you know what I mean? I, I felt less yeah. all the time. And, and so I started using drugs again. Um, and there were just short periods with, with the meth use, you know, and I'd, I'd relapse going to psychosis relapse. And it was just this, constant thing and anyway my my wife was studying a bachelor of trauma and healing at the time and i think that's what's really enabled me to to heal from a lot of my past and um and also you know what what god's done in my life and i made a decision to go up to see my friend at church because i'd had enough of life i was suicidal basically and i'd, I'd attempted suicide in multiple times prior to you know meeting libby through growing up as a teenager um just mainly through drug use you know overdosing on painkillers and stuff like that and um i just didn't die and i i went up the church and my mate basically said to me look wait i can't help you anymore you know i was 
just using so much and Libby at the time I'd left and little did Libby know, but I'd actually signed this like agreement with myself that that was the day that I was going to end my life. And Libby come running down and she found me in this laneway. And my cousin that, um, that had committed suicide, well, I remember him saying to me when I was about 13 and I lost him when I was, I lost him when I was 13. So it would have been a bit, little bit earlier, but he, you know, he essentially said to me, if you ever want to, commit suicide Wade you just have a shot of heroin and I was always scared of heroin because my family were all heroin addicts so I'd just seen people die from the stuff you know what I mean so I never tried it and she didn't know it, but I'd, I'd actually made that des- the decision to take that advice and anyway cut a long story short she she found me in this laneway and she said what do I need to do to save your life wow and I, I broke down and I just said, I need to go out bush and I need to detox. And she was working at the time. She's an amazing woman. She was working at the time and she said, I'm going to ring work and cancel work and I'll take you out bush. So on the 29th of January, 2014, um, we walked off together. We went and got her car. We packed the little $20 tent that we had or that she had. Um, I was homeless. My like, I, I had a unit, and within a week of using, I'd lost my. I sold my car. I lost my house. Um, basically, I had I had nothing left, and only only a bag of clothes essentially. Um, and we went out bush, and I detoxed for two weeks out in it's a little place called Yurigi National Park, and uh, I've been clean ever since that day, which was nearly seven years ago now that's what what's that there's so much i want to ask but what what's the detoxing process like wait like what what is it like coming off of this stuff it's like a constant battle with your mind essentially and there's so much that i've missed hey like i've just tried to condense everything but that's fine bro that's from from so two I'll just go from 23. I've been in a psych ward. I've got out. I've gotten out of the psych ward. I'm now diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. I'm heavily medicated. I go from 57 kilos to 140 kilos. I wake up one morning, and this is all in the. This is all in a, in in like a, an eight month gap, right? So I wake up. I'm facing a seven year jail sentence. I don't know what I've done because I can't remember. You know, I'm, I'm heavily medicated. I get into jail in, in Darcy, which was the, the first prison cell that I show you. I get in there and I stop my medication, right? The psychologists don't see me. My mum, I remember when I got taken away and handcuffed from the courtroom, my mum was like, is he going to get assistance whilst he's in prison with his medication, Right. And when I got to jail, I, I didn't get attended to by the, the, the psych, the psychiatrists. Um, so I actually stopped my medication while I was in prison, you know, which was, it's about 11 years ago now, 10 years ago. So I haven't been medicated. So that's one other, that's a, other, another whole story of God just healing me from my schizophrenia and bipolar. Um, and it took me like seven years of asking for a sound mind to get yeah, that. Wow. In jail, I, I was able to to lose forty kilos. I trained daily. I it was really it, it really grew me there. It was probably the most time in my life that I felt free. And I know that sounds silly, but when I was in there, I wasn't using drugs because I was taught that if you use drugs in jail, you'll probably end up dead if you start to use them in there because it's just you, you, everything's so expensive. You know what I mean? Like a a stick, a twenty dollar stick of pot is like six hundred dollars in jail do you know what i mean so you know you know the pen lids that you get you know like the big the big pens and you take those little metal things off that's that's a stick in jail that's how that's what you pay 20 bucks for one little comb comb piece of a pen lid you know what i mean um and i learned like we we learned so much stuff in there like it was it was crazy we could boil water out of power points right by sticking bits of foil in there and sticking them down into the cups of water we learned how to there was just so many different we people guys were making alcohol out of vegemite and jam and 
just all weird. <laughs> yeah, through fermentation processes, there was yeah, it was it was a it was a ridiculous um, time. But I felt free in there because I was, you know what I mean. I was able to start to build some healthy habits back in my life. I got up, I had a routine. I'd wake up at a certain time because you, you're locked in for, you know what I mean. Like there's a big period of time where you're locked in in yourself for 23 hours a day. Sometimes lock-ins for two, three weeks, and that's like. You don't see anyone. They open the door. They kick. They literally kick your food in like you're an animal, and then they close the door, and that's what you get. You know. Wow. Um, anyway, I get out of jail. I end up back in rehab. I relapse. I end up back in rehab again. I get out of rehab, and I, I move. I move town. So. And then um, so now we're we're back. A bunch of other stuff happens, and you've met your wife now, and we're in the forest, and you've. Yeah detoxed there and then kind of what's the journey from then till now from 2014 till now how has kind of god so moved in those seven years yeah so like i said this is the period of time that i've done more in my life than i had the whole um you know the whole time frame of my life so i yeah i met my wife uh we had our first daughter um eden um and obviously the detox process was a hard process for me to go through because essentially what had happened is from the age of 12 to 13, I, when I started using, I literally turned this switch off physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, right? So here I am 27, 28, year old, 28 years old and I'm like a 12-year-old kid, you know, because for so long in my life, I just switched everything off yeah. i don't want to feel i use drugs i don't want to do you know what i mean so i just suppressed so much of my stuff I, I like to use the if you can imagine an iceberg and you you see the tip of the iceberg and that's the drinking that's the drugging that's the gambling that's the addict the, the addictive behavior or problem behavior whatever that might be and underneath all that is all the underlining you know the, sh the guilt, the shame, the remorse. So you, people often just see the, the, the tip of the iceberg, the drinking, the, the drugging and stuff, but what they don't see is all that under the surface stuff. Mm. Uh, and that's what addiction is. It's, it's the 85% of that stuff that, that actually, you know, pushes the addiction. Um, so yeah, I, I yeah, basically met my wife on the 23rd of August uh a year later we got married um we had my daughter eden uh we got married on the 23rd of august a year later uh and there's also like a little funny thing with the the 23 as well because that's when all the really bad stuff had happened in my life i was 23 years old so i was fixated on this number but then you know all this good stuff started to happen so my wife's birthday is on the 23rd you know, my, and these are just all little signs of God giving back, you know, like uh, my birthdays on the 23rd, um, just all these little things that had happened. But essentially, yeah, I had my daughter, Eden. Um, I had Silas, my son, uh, and I started to try and study. And I, I went and studied community services. I went and studied alcohol and other drugs. I went and studied mental health. Um, with the assistance of my wife. I think that might have been the thing that I'd mentioned. I thought I'd just bring that up. I, I really struggled with the learning component. So I I'd, 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 I sort of want to correct myself when I go to Gathering next time and just say that I, I did do a lot of the study. I just had my wife there helping me, you know, along the way. Uh, <laughs> she's the helper. Yeah, she's, she's awesome, bro. Um, and then I just started, yeah, studying and really trying to learn about my addiction and, and how I could change that life. But not only that, God said to me, like, this is your opportunity to break eight generations of trauma. And the only way I can do that, so my kids have never seen their dad use, you know, they've never seen their dad drink, they've never seen their dad, um, you know, they've never seen their dad smoke, which is just totally it's a so different to what i was used to growing up you know so that's like my mission is to um try and break that cycle you know and 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 all of you guys have got 
a mission that, that God's given to you and you might not know it yet, but you've just got to keep calling out to him and asking him and finding what that might be. And, um, you know, recognize if there's any sort of problems that you guys are dealing with, get support, you know, look at options for help, um, whatever it might be. Anyway, I, yeah. So that's pretty much, um, sort of a rundown of the last six years, you know, I, I was studying and then trying to work. And then three years ago, again, it got to the point where I couldn't find work. So God said to me, go to Darwin. And it, you know, five years clean. Um, I, we became homeless. I had two kids, four and a half years clean. So I became homeless again, had five, uh, two kids at the time. And, you know, I just invested all this time in study and then I couldn't get a job with the study because of my criminal record. So every time I'd go for a job, my criminal record would come up. Sorry, you're not suitable. You're not suitable. You're not suitable. So then I faced that battle, still face that battle. Anyway, God said, go to Darwin. I was like, with what? I've got no money. You know, my, um, and my wife was like, it'll be okay. Just listen. So she's really been like a, a mentor in a sense. That's like, just, leaning on God and everything will be okay. So anyway, we end up in Darwin and I'm thinking we're taking my family into the desert and, you know, there's, it was crazy. We lived in the bush for about four months. Um, I got into Darwin. I applied, I looked up rehab, applied for a job. Um, and basically, you know, they said uh, a case manager left work yesterday, come in and you can start work tomorrow. So, yeah, just listening to that voice, you know. So I went up to Darwin, started work. I've just come back from Darwin now. Um, so I work. I now work as a case manager in the rehab that I spent three years of my life in. Wow, bro, that's insane. And that's I support crazy. and I support um, guys that are going down the same journey. So ninety percent of the clients at the rehab come from jail. Um, so God's really given me a platform to be able to speak life into those guys. And, you know, I just wanted to go back to, to the, how do I go back to the slide? There we go. But I, I, I can see you. Yeah. So that's, you've seen that one. Yeah. There's a jail there. That's Silverwater prison. Um, that's crazy by the way, that jails look like that in like, Oh, that's when the screws, so what the screws do, the screws are the guards, right? So what they do is they, you can have your cell looking nice and you know what they do? They just come in and just rip, they go stand at the end of your bed and they literally just grab your, your containers out and they just tip everything everywhere. They just tip your milk out. They pour everything, like they rip your sheets off your bed. They, yeah, when they ramp through the prison, they just come in and um, trash everything. What's the point of that exercise? Well, it's sort of like a, a therapy in a sense where, because in, in jail, it's like the guys in green versus the guys in, or the girls in blue. Yeah. So there's this like inmates versus officer mentality. Um, and a lot of the officers don't like inmates, you know, there's this, there's, yeah, it's, it's definitely not trauma informed. I can tell you that much. So it's more like a therapy. They just do it to annoy, annoy guys in there. Wow. Um, and they can just do that to, you know, be a pain. Uh, so, yeah, so here, where was I up to? Uh, well, you'd gotten the job. Uh, in the yeah, so, yeah, so I work in drug and alcohol rehab now. Um, I've also travelled, like, around Australia doing talks. Um, so this talk here is Paul Cowley. He's the founder of the Global Mentoring Program, Caring for Ex-Offenders. So... Here I was asked to, you know, talk about my experiences with prison and how mentoring plays a role and how God played a role in my life and, you know, what he what he does. And I'd, I wish I, I had some more verses to be able to throw you guys, but essentially, um, you know, God can take any situation and turn it around for the better. Here's the gathering, bro. Yeah, I think I'm just outside that frame on the left there. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Near, that, near that beam because that was, um, I think that's, that's Kyle, the cameraman's name. 
I was really, really close to him. So, yeah, I, I remember that day very clearly, bro. Oh, it was the most scary. It put me in a maximum security prison before you put me up there on that seat. Can you see? The little... <laughs> that was the most scariest thing. Even like talking to you guys is, is you know, it's public speaking is not my thing. Um, but, you know, here I'm like, you've got some bloke that's just been a drug addict and been to jail and like you so this guy here toby hall he's the ceo of st vincent's um health so he like runs that you've got this bloke here he's like he runs a billion dollar corporation there's like there's guys here that are running there was one guy there that runs 39 companies and i'm like how do you even do that you know yeah. <laughs> It was an yeah, it was an insane lineup of, and you you for those you guys weren't there. Wade when he started speaking, he was physically shaking. Like actually, I I remember like your voice, your hands, like you were physically shaking, bro. Oh, I was so scared. I get scared just thinking about it. <laughs> uh, so this might this might be cool for you guys, but yeah, I get sponsored now by uh, Deakin University. So this guy here, Joe Grafham, he's the uh, he's the chancellor of Deakin University. Um, I'm actually writing a book with with Joe at the moment, and I've got uh, ten other guys that have all been to jail. Uh, I think there's about 115 years of prison time, and uh, one of those guys actually escaped from the the, the Silverwater prison. Um, he escaped from there out with a helicopter. They, a helicopter come and picked him up. Um, Google, yeah, have a look at John Killick. In, 2000, in 1999, he, um, he escapes uh, via That's a helicopter. Mental. That's <laughs> mental, right? his girlfriend uh, His girlfriend had come and picked him up in a helicopter. Um, but he got, he got another 15. So he was already doing 15 years jail for bank robbery. And he got another 15 years for that escape. So he's, he spent 30 years in jail. Wow. Um, but yeah, so Joe and Deakin University, they're actually helping me. So I've got PhD students that are um, helping us come up with a structure of the book because what I want the book to be about is, is that people can change. And I want to encourage young people to try and make the right choices in life. You know what I mean? When, when I was 12 and 13 and people were telling me that, you know, your life can go on this downward spiral, I didn't, I didn't believe it, you know what I mean? And, and my experience has um, shown me that a lot of people, unfortunately, go down that path and they just, they, they, they get to a point where they think it's not going to happen to me. And I remember that. Like, I remember being at school and a motivational speaker coming into school and talking about his life. And I was like, I'm never going to be like that guy. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm just smoking a little bit of pot here and there, you know, with my mates. And um, it became like 10 times worse than that guy, you know? So that's, that's Joe there. That's me at the reintegration puzzle. Um, they sponsor me every year now to go and attend the reintegration puzzle, which is basically, it's a collective, I think about 500 organisations come from all around the world and they, you know, they, they, they get to, um, that's not my doing, that's all God's doing. Um, and this, this family here, that's my wife. There's Silas, my son, there's Evie, there's Eden, there's Jono. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is my wife's family. Um, yeah, I've really been blessed with, you know, um, a new life, essentially, you know. Praise God, man. Well, I guess just... And that's how I wanted to finish it, because without this bloke, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I love him. I love him to bits. Um, you know, I... I wouldn't have any of that stuff. Mm. Bless you, Wade. Man, uh, I'm going to read that verse because it's an amazing verse. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. 
Bro, your story is insane. Um, Sorry, guys. Nah, man. And the fact that you're you're willing to share it uh, literally has the power to save lives. Um, and I'm 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 honoured to have met you, bro, and 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 to have had you with us tonight to share your story. And at the end of it, like you said, if it wasn't for the Lord, you would have had no chance, and none of us would have had a chance. And um, I just love your story because anybody, like God can literally bring anybody back from the brink um, and, um, and is using you in amazing ways with people who probably only you can reach way because you've gone through kind of the same traumatic experience as them. You've, you've, you've been to jail, you've been to the rehabs, you've used all the drugs and, um, and God's still done this with your life and, and he's given you a new life. And, um, you're able to go in those dark places and have those conversations that probably nobody else is qualified to have other than you. Um, you, you had that flower. Do you want to tell us that what you, the thought that you shared with me about oh, that? Yes. I was trying to come up with like, I've got to practice more. Eh? Cause I really like how people can get up on stage and just use all these different analogies and relate it back to the Bible. And it's something that I've wanted to do. So I was chatting with my wife's mum the other night and she was telling me about the story of Job because I was like, how do I, how can I tell the story? Because usually when you become a Christian, people think that your life's meant to get better, yeah? And all this bad stuff's not meant to happen. And then I'm like, I became a Christian and all this stuff happened and people are like, oh, I'm not becoming a Christian. <laughs> um, but then she explained it to me. She explained it to me by explaining the process of how gold becomes the best form of gold, right? And when gold's picked out of the ground, it goes through this refining process. It's covered in dirt and it gets, the only way that gold, the best type of gold, the best quality gold can become, um, you know, the purest form of gold is it needs to go through high temperatures. So it needs to be heated at high temperatures. It needs to be burnt. It needs to be, there needs this process of refining to happen. And that's what she was sort of explaining my life was like, you know, to get to the best form of gold, you have to go through this process of, of immense heat. And essentially that life story was just, it was like, it was like hell <laughs> essentially. So I was thinking, how could I explain it? Now I love plants. My, my son's name Silas. Um, and you know, Silas sang a song and broke down the walls and he was in prison. Um, so there, that's one reason I, I chose that name. But the other reason was I wanted to call one of my kids an, a name after a plant. My wife was like, what are you going to, you know, call a kid? And I was like, oh, we can call it, you know, like, I don't know. I was coming up with all these names, but she wasn't happy with it. And anyway, Silas also means um, of the forest. So it's like God of all trees. Um, but yesterday he brought me home this little plant, this little hake, it's called a hakea tetrafolia. And I think it sort of relates to Job's story. Um, well, I, I hope it does. I hope I'm one of those guys that can use an analogy, but anyway, this, this plant, right. And uh, there's 27,500 species of plant in Australia, right. And probably 85% of those plants, they need to be burnt in order to regenerate new growth and new life, yeah? So my son found this little guy and the only way this, this plant is able to put out it, so you got little seeds there, one, two. The only way that plant is able to create new life is if intense fire goes through the bush and burns these pods and they open up and they regenerate new life. Yeah. Um, so I just thought that was a bit of a, you know, sort of related to um, the story in, in a sense that people go through all these difficulties in their life, but it's actually those moments and those times in life that develop character and they create, um, you know, massive opportunity for people to, to, 
create a new life. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that, bro, you can use an analogy. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that that was, that was, that was just fine. But yeah, I, I think like you said, God, uh, used that time to make Job realize what his faith was, was really in. And, um, through the fire of, you know, basically hell, uh, your relationship with God is, is what it is now. And he's using you in the ways that, that he's using you now. And you have three beautiful kids with a fourth on the way and an amazing wife. And, um, just nobody almost could have predicted looking at your life 10 years ago. This, this is that you were going to be with us tonight, sharing the story with, with the life that, that God has given you today. And, um, bro, I just want to thank you, man. I just want to thank you for coming on and, and for sharing. And, um, it's an amazing story and an amazing testimony of God's unbelievable grace, bro. Um, I don't know who who's here tonight who needed to hear it, but I'm sure somebody did. So well, thanks, I hope so. thanks, bro.